0: Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you go ahead and find your way to Colossians chapter 1 that's in the New Testament? And uh, we're going to look at verses 19 through 23. <clears throat> this morning's a, a pretty important morning as we're starting a series uh, that we'll carry over the next few weeks that is is kind of a defining um, series for who we are as a church. Last week, if you're here, we talked about what does it look like to be an Antioch person. In, in other words, as a church, what does it mean to live out who God's called us to be? And so we talked about that. And at the end of the service, I mentioned that, that the challenge that we face is how do we, how do we live in the way that God's called us to live? Well, there, there's, a, there's an answer to that, and it, and it comes in the form of a person. And his name is Jesus. The way that you and I can actually live the way God has purposed us to live is only through Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to take some time, and then the next few weeks, to talk about what that looks like in our life, how we connect and how we relate to Jesus. If you're perceptive, and, and you came in this morning, in the lobby, you noticed there is actually something different in the lobby. If you missed it, maybe you're not so perceptive. The wall has changed color, and actually there's huge letters on that wall, and those letters spell out these phrases. With Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. Anybody happen to notice that on your way in? Most of you did not. Well, guess what? When you leave today, you will see it, Okay. But I want you to to, to dial into these these phrases. In fact, say this, because you're going to hear this over and over again. In fact, if you've been a part of Antioch, these are phrases you've heard before. But let's say it together. With Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. So those three simple words that come before Jesus describe some kind of big terms that we throw around in the church that sometimes we don't understand. The concept of with has to do with walking with Jesus, being with Jesus. It's this term we use called Reconciliation and that's what we're going to focus in on this morning But being like jesus is another word that we throw around in the church all the time And it's the word discipleship actually becoming like jesus And then the third one is for jesus, which has to do with a word called worship And usually when you say worship automatically We just default to the 30 minutes that we spend singing songs on sunday morning We check into worship. And we check out of worship But actually, living for Jesus is a life that's completely sold out to Him. We take second place, we take the back seat, and we let Jesus be the center of our lives. That's what worship is. So for these few weeks, we're going to talk about these because it's so important, especially today. So for those of you who've known Jesus, there's a moment in your life years ago where you either prayed a prayer or you made a commitment to follow Jesus, and that's what you've been trying to do since that moment. What we're going to cover today, you're probably going to default to this. Ah, this is review. I got this one. I, I know that There's a danger in the familiarity of of time spent with jesus that things that should be foundational become just common And then there's those of you who are here. In fact, if we had some first service I know that you don't even know jesus yet And what you're about to hear is so important to you because it can change and shape the way you see yourself and the way You connect to god and so what you, uh, you'll hear this morning is extremely important we're going to talk about what does it mean to be with Jesus. This concept of reconciliation. So I have us in, uh, in first, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter one verses nineteen to twenty-three, and I want to read this passage. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along. But but I want us to kind of dial in on a couple of the the phrases that are here. And so I want you to kind of understand this. So so starting at verse nineteen, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing about Jesus. He's describing Jesus. So he says this in verse nineteen. He says, "For in Him." All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in a sense, that Jesus is God, fully God. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do this? Making peace by the blood, his blood on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross. Now here, I want you to listen to this, because this is the position you and I need to see, okay? Verse 21. And you, which is all of us, were once, and here it is, if I'm standing right here, my position on the stage is right with Jesus. I'm with God, I'm walking with Him, or, or uh, I, I'm at a place where I'm about to say yes to Jesus. Listen to what Paul describes where we used to be and where some of, them a- some of us actually are today, whether we know it or not. He says this, on, in you who what once were alienated, it's not a good word, is it? No one likes to feel alienated. And he says the second thing, and hostile in mind. And then a the third thing, he says, doing evil deeds. Paul's describing that God is over there, and through our position and our lives and our decisions, this is where we place ourselves. Whether you know it or not, this is the position that you and I find ourselves. We are at a distance from God. But then look at going on. This is the good news, verse 22. And he now uh, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present. And here's the other phrases Paul uses to cancel out that position that you are what? Holy, you are blameless, and you are above reproach before him. So Paul's describing this position that we have and where we find ourselves, but everything through Jesus brings us back into. Direct connection with God and then he goes on and says this in verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard Which had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I Paul became a minister Eventually we'll get to another passage, but not yet in 2nd Corinthians But I want to just take some time to look at what Paul's talking about here because this is really Really important to understand how you and I can be with or without jesus And how we find our way back into relationship with God. Or for the first time, we find ourselves in a relationship with God. So the first three things, just to kind of see what Paul's saying. What does Paul describe? That you and I, without Jesus, in this life, where does that leave us? With no connection to God. Paul says three things. First of all, he said, this is who you and I are. Whether or not, we are strangers. We're strangers to God. He uses the word alienated. Which means that we are separated from him. So think about this in terms of what does it mean to be a stranger? It means to be unfamiliar. So when somebody walks into a room and you don't know them, in your mind, you, to you, they are a stranger. And we use, it, it, there's distance between us because there's not a familiarity, there's not a friendship there, there's, there's distance. Why? Because you don't know them. And it, there's this tension when we don't know people because we don't trust them, we don't understand them, they don't understand us. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about a moment in your life, because I think all of us have probably had this one time or another, where there's somebody that you knew years ago and you were probably either good friends or it was an acquaintance, but definitely you had some time with them, some kind of connection with them. And then you run into them down the line in your life and you recognize them, but they don't recognize you. And maybe I know I've had this happen. You walk up and you start having a conversation, hey, so and so. And you remember when we did it, and they look at you with that blank stare. Because to you, you think they're a friend, but for them looking at you, you're a stranger. We use this term estrangement, which means at a distance, unfamiliar. So what Paul's saying is, listen, if you don't connect with Jesus, if you don't know who Jesus is, then whether you know it or not, you are a stranger to God. He's unfamiliar to you because you don't know who he is because you don't know Jesus. Then Paul goes on with the second word, and this is where it's interesting. These are things that you and I don't necessarily feel about ourselves, but this is the reality of a bigger reality that's going on spiritually all around us that sometimes we're unaware of. He says, not only are we strangers, but in verse 21, he uses another word, hostile, that we're actually enemies. You're like, I am not an enemy of God. Come on, Pastor John, you're pushing too hard here. I'm not a bad person. I don't have ill feelings towards God. We don't always get along all the time. We're not too close, but I'm definitely not an enemy of God. But Paul's saying is, yes, whether you know it or not, apart from Jesus, you are an enemy of God. You're not on on the same side as him. You're the opposite of him. And this is important because most of us, most of us do not self-identify like, yep, I'm an enemy of God. We don't say that. But here's how it works out in our life. When you and I, whether we know it or not, are opposed to God either directly and outwardly, Or unintentionally, inwardly, then we are an enemy of God. Let me explain it this way. This is sometimes where we don't get it. So there's there's a story in Luke 15 that most of us probably have heard. If you haven't heard the story, you know the title. It's called The Prodigal Son. And that's really not the best name for that, because there's actually three characters in that story that are very, very important. But we always focus on the what? The son who... If you don't know the story, he goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, even though you're not dead. And his father agrees and gives him a third of his wealth. And he goes out, and he lives the life he wants to live. He squanders it, he parties, and then he's left with nothing. And then you know the story goes, he literally starts fighting pigs for food. And then he comes to his senses, and he goes back to his father, and his father embraces him. And so we always kind of lean in, yeah, it's about the prodigal son. No, no, there's two other characters that are really important in the story that you and I forget. We understand that the son who left was wrong. He was sinful. He was broken. He went. So we we either can identify with him or we pass judgment on him. But there's two other characters that are important. The one is the father and his response to the both of his sons. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there's another son in the story. It's the son that didn't go anywhere. It's the son that stayed home. It's the son who didn't ask for his father's inheritance. It's the son who did his chores. It's the son who worked on his father's ranch or his farm. It's the son that did everything right. And we think, yeah, he, he's the good son, and the bad son's the one that went out. The one that went out was the enemy. The one that stayed was an ally. And actually, that's wrong. Because if you read that story, the story Jesus was actually telling was supposed to focus on the older son. Because he was speaking to a group of Pharisees. Because what was wrong with the oldest son? The oldest son thought the way that he related to his dad was by doing good deeds. By performing. By not doing the bad things that his prodigal brother went out and did, but actually staying home and being the good boy or the good child. And because he thought in his mind, if I'm good enough, then dad will love me more than my brother. If I'm good enough, Dad will accept me. Both of them were wrong. But on the outside, who do we look at as the enemy? He's the one that, how arrogant for a son to ask for his father's inheritance before his dad's even dead. But you know what the Bible's telling us, Jesus is saying? Both of them are completely wrong. Because one who thinks he's good is actually an enemy of God. The other one who knows and realizes he's bad is just as much an enemy. Both of them. And so that means what Paul's saying is that no matter who you think you are and how good you think you are, apart from Jesus, we're an enemy of God. We're working against him. See, because you and I have to understand, we can't, we can't be good enough for God to say, yep, you're good enough. You finally reached the status where I can say, yeah, you've worked hard enough. You're good. No, Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates for you and I we can never be good enough. We can't earn our way into relationship with God. We can't be connected with God apart from Jesus. That's what we have to rely on. That means whether we do good or we do bad, we're still an enemy of God apart from Jesus. Keep following with me. So we're strangers, we're enemies. This is really great news. I know you feel really uplifted this morning. We will, it'll get good in a minute, okay? Last part of verse 21, Paul says this. He also uses this phrase to describe our condition, being disconnected from God, that we are doing evil deeds. So here's the real good news. You know what, by nature, you know what we are? We're corrupt. Aren't you glad you woke up this morning and thought, yeah, I'm a corrupt person. That's the condition that we're in. Why? Because the outflow of being a stranger from God and being an enemy of God is eventually, you know what, it takes root in our lives and we actually live out the nature of who we are, which is corrupt. And that means left to our own devices, you and I will go down a road that we're not supposed to go down. We will. By nature, we'll just go that route because that's, Apart from Jesus in our life, that's where we go. And that's important for us to understand because if you and I think for a, for a moment that we're like somehow a little bit better than everybody else, all of us are on the same playing, f- even playing field here. We're all corrupt. But when we think that we're not, we get into trouble. Listen to what Paul also writes in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but. Nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. And this is pretty harsh. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. This is our condition. And this is why being with Jesus to be connected back to God changes everything about who we are. But if you and I would just pause for a moment. I know this is heavy to think about. I'm like, I don't want to think about these things. This is why knowing Jesus is so important. Because no matter what you try to do, you, you can't undo these things about yourself. It's only through Jesus, his death on the cross, which takes all of our corruption, us being an enemy of God and being a stranger, and he takes that on himself, pays for that, and then we'll talk about changes our nature before God. So what's the good news? So that's what it looks like to be without Jesus, or disconnected from God. What does it look like when we're actually reconciled to God? We're with Jesus. So Paul goes on, verse 22, and he says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his blood in order to present you. And then Paul says three things about what our nature is now different, how we've changed. Not because we've changed ourselves, but because through what Jesus has done, God transforms us. Listen to what it says, verse 22. The first thing that Paul says is true of us is we are holy. There's another word we could use, accepted. Now, the word holy has to do with the connotation is that there's something worthy about you that you are allowed to be or entitled to be in the presence of royalty. There's something separate or unique about you. That's kind of what holy has, to, has means. But it means that somehow you can walk into a place where maybe you don't think you belong, but because you're holy and set apart, you belong there, which means you are accepted. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but this is one of the deepest desires of all of us in all of our lives is for God and for other people to accept us. It drives so much of who we are that we would be accepted. But what Paul is saying is, through Jesus, reconnected to God, now you become acceptable to God. You become somebody who God welcomes in. Not because you've worked really hard and finally you've reached the status. No, because Jesus gave his life for you and says, listen, I'll take your sin, I'll give you my righteousness, and then you are acceptable. You are reconnected with God. We can't do that by ourselves. We don't get access to God on our own. We have to rely on Jesus. So here's the reality of what that's like. I have never set foot in the presence of true, like, earthly royalty. Anybody ever done that? You ever been in the presence of, like, a queen or a king or a prince or a princess? I mean, some people have. The closest I've ever gotten to it was actually in Uganda when we got to go stay with the archbishop of Uganda, who is the head of the Anglican Church. And, and in Uganda, there's this kind of feeling that, that, uh, that the head of the Anglican Church almost is treated like royalty, and I wasn't completely understanding of all of that when, when we went there, but I started to pick up that when we were there and knowing that we were there for about a week and a half before we went to his house. And the, the reason that we got access to him is not because anybody in our team was anything special, but because the pastor who we were friends with who had brought us to Uganda was his nephew. And he said, while you're here, one of the things I want to make sure that you get to do is you've got to meet my uncle, you've got to meet the archbishop, he's the most amazing man. And so when we, finally, about a week and a half in, we drove to his house, and, and it was interesting, when you're in, if you've been in, in other places, Haiti's similar to this, but we're in Africa, in the middle of nowhere, and you're driving by huts, and, you know, and, and it just doesn't look like civilization, and all of a sudden, we drive up on this compound, big high walls, and a big fence, or, in a gate, and the gate opens, and we go in, and I'm like, okay, this is not all of what I expected, I mean, we're in the middle of, like, you know, this is Uganda, and, we go in, and it's the, the, what looks on the outside looks on the inside. Completely different reality. And we get out of the car, and the archbishop comes out. And he wasn't, like, wearing a robe or a hatter, and he wasn't carrying a big staff or anything like that. But just by his presence, you're like, okay, this guy is somebody. He just, he just the way he carried himself. And then right away, we could see that, that everything was a little bit different because he had servants like literally like they brought him his paper in the morning and they brought him his food and i mean he didn't have to do anything they all just in fact they were very respectful literally when they walked up to him they would like kneel down and then when they walked away they would keep their head down as a point of respect which was really hard for our team but that was kind of their culture but i remember as we were i I, then i started to realize okay we're actually with somebody who's relatively significant in this country but then that night we had dinner with him and he was the most down-to-earth man that I had ever met. He just, we sat and had a conversation. He asked us about what our team was up to and why we had come to Uganda and he shared his heart for his own country and it was the most amazing thing and I remember sitting there and I looked acro- across the table at Pastor Micah who was our friend and I remember thinking, if I didn't know Pastor Micah, there's no way I'm ever going to meet the Archbishop of Uganda. And if you and I have to just think for a moment, If you don't know Jesus, you never get access to God. Why is that important? Because God created you and created you to live a way that is truly life. And if you never meet him, you never truly live. And that's why this whole understanding of being holy or being acceptable to God is so important. Why? Because it's when you're accepted by God that finally, for the first time in your life, you're truly living. You've come alive. So Paul says you're holy because what Jesus has done, you've been connected to God. Second thing, you are washed. He uses the word blameless. That means that you and I have no stain. We have no defect. We are perfect. You're like, ooh, I like that. Not perfect because you and I have made ourselves perfect, but perfect because God has made us perfect through Jesus. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you are actually blameless? If there was nothing in you that was undealt with, nothing that you... Somehow had underneath the surface that you actually were right and pure and you actually felt that way Some of us don't even know what that's like But jesus brings that about where he takes our sin Gives us his righteousness and we are through and through before god blameless We're right before god But you know what we have a struggle with with this thing and purity is that we We try to work at making ourselves pure and right and blameless Because somehow in our mind, I don't know, in our insanity as being human beings, we think we can do it. And we try hard. We try to repair what's broken in our lives. When I was growing up, I was uh, the youngest of four, only boy. And so when I came, all the rules changed for our household. Because my sisters obviously lived a certain way, and and then I came along and I lived a little bit differently than the girls in the family lived and so I was a lot more difficult and hard on my clothes Uh, my mom had stains with my sisters but she had stains and mud and dirt and tears and all kind of stuff in fact we didn't have a lot of money so my mom like at the beginning of the school year she would buy me jeans in fact this will show my age they were tough skins from Sears which I don't even think they make anymore and uh, and so she'd say listen you need to take care of your jeans because they got to last you the whole school year and so I'm like, okay. And so first day, I'd go to school, I'd wear my jeans, and then I'd go outside to play with my friends, and right away, grass, stain, mud. But one of the issues, I don't know what I kept doing, but I kept ripping the knees of my jeans, which today would be really cool, but not when I was growing up. <laughs> and so literally, I come home, and she goes, what did you do to your jeans? You wore a hole in them, or you ripped them again. I'm like, I don't know. So I would put them, you know, in the laundry basket, and then they'd come out of the laundry, but they always came out different than when they went in. Because they always would come out with patches on the knees. Anybody remember that? And I didn't realize it, but every time I tore my jeans, my mom would put a patch on, and then she'd sew it on, and then it would come out of the laundry. And because we'd have a lot of money, it wasn't one patch. It was usually five layers of patches. So she just kept, as long as the patches would adhere to the other patch, she would just keep doing it. And I'm not kidding. By the time my jeans were, like, worn out, my knee was like out to here, and I couldn't even bend my legs because the patches were so thick. She just kept doing that, but she couldn't get out all the stains, so my, 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 I had stains on my patches, I had stains all over, and by the time my pants were done, they literally just needed to be like thrown into the toxic heap, you know? They were just destroyed. And I think, you know what, that's, that's the equivalent of how we work at purity and being blameless in our life. When something happens and you and I are blemished, we try to cover it up. We try to sweep it under the rug so we don't have to think about it. Nobody else knows about it, but it's still there. When Jesus says you're blameless, he doesn't doesn't just throw a patch on your wound or your brokenness or your sin. He actually replaces your jeans with something that's brand new. And when a stain gets put on them, he doesn't try to use detergent to get it out and hope that it doesn't show up and nobody sees it. He actually removes it completely. Why? Because the stain is not your stain. The stain is his stain. Our sin is on him, not us. That's why you can be blameless before God when you are connected with Jesus, because he has forgiven you for the stain of your life and allowed himself to be stained for you. So if you want to understand that Paul's saying we are holy, so we're acceptable, we are washed. And then the third thing is that we are shameless. He uses this phrase. He said, you're above reproach. And abo- above reproach, reproach means that nothing sticks. No accusations stick. There's nothing about you that is hidden, nothing about you that is, is, is wrong or impure. Why? Because you've perfected yourself? No, because Jesus has forgiven you. Therefore, the accusations of the enemy can't stick in your life because Jesus has covered your sin. You are above reproach. When you're above reproach, something happens that you and I all long for, but many of us never experience. You live a life that has no shame. That's foreign to most of us. Because most of us live with shame. What is shame? Shame is the shadow that is cast by our past brokenness. And it follows us every day of our lives. We look back at our past and we know, we don't go back to the very moment, but there's this feeling that there's unresolved issues in our life. There's brokenness and sin in our life. And therefore, there's a sense of guilt that comes on us. And that guilt casts a shadow over everything. It taints everything everything in your life, and some of us have lived in the shadow of shame for our entire lives, because we're still trying to hide it from God, not releasing it, surrendering it, and confessing it, and seeing Jesus forgive it in our lives, then we can be free. I'm telling you, shame is a horrible thing. It ruins our lives, and I've shared this in one form or another, but but this is my reality for years, and uh, we have some folks that, that are still a part of our church today that were a part of our church in Ventura a number of years ago when we planted there. And and, and what I share, I share from my perspective. When, when, when God plants a church, it's his church, and he's always successful. Leaders, on the other hand, sometimes aren't as successful as we should be or as right as we should be. I learned a lot of things by mistake in a church plant in Ventura. doesn't mean that God didn't still move in the lives of people and, st- and, and did a m- wonderful things. But for me, there was something in me that I was going through as a leader that I had so identified myself with the church. If the church didn't reach certain levels, then I thought I was a failure. And that failure shaped who I was in the way that I saw myself. We were in Ventura for seven years. That, that shaped me very difficult, shaped me for five solid years before the last two years I started to understand something different myself. And then we moved to Oregon. But family was still down here. So we came down to Ventura all the time. And for the first four years of coming back to Ventura, every single time we drove in the city limits of Ventura, I didn't want to be there. Because every street we passed, every house we went by, every location of where the church used to meet brought back bad memories and failures in my life, and I felt shame. We would drive into the city, and Kim would say to me, I love Ventura. I want to die here. I want to retire here because this is where she was born. That's where our kids were born. That's where we lived for 12 years. It's a beautiful place. Those of you who live in Ventura know that you, are, you were jealous because you live there. And it's this great place, but every time we drove into the city, I just felt so depressed. And she would say, I love this city. And I honestly, this is what I said to him: I hate this city because it reminds me of my brokenness. Four years of that. I loved the family that we would come back to see, but I'd hate to see this. I love when they came to Oregon to see us. They didn't have to deal with my past. But God started to work something in me that the failure of my past, I had not fully surrendered over to Him. And when I finally did it, I now love Ventura. Not just because it has a better climate than Simi Valley and it has the ocean and all those things, but I love the city of Ventura because when I go back there, there's no shadow cast from shame from my past. It's just a beautiful city that I get to go visit and get to drive through quite frequently. And for some of you, your life has been like that. You're completely tainted by shame. Why? Because you haven't surrendered yourself over to Jesus, and therefore, there's still a disconnect between you and God. And Jesus is saying, listen, I have given my life for you to pay for your sin, to release you from shame so that you can be alive and be blameless before me and have no shame in your life. But you still don't really know Jesus. Therefore, you still have shame in your life. But God wants to bring freedom. So we've looked at what is it with life without Jesus? What is life with Jesus? What is it to be disconnected from God? What is it to be with God? Now, if you have your Bibles, just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. and going to look at verses 17 and 21. Just three things I want to highlight because this is the shift. So now Paul writes, now that you understand you've been reconciled, you're with God, you're with Jesus. This is what our lives are supposed to look like now. In fact, you may have your Bible. I'm going to ask you, just close your eyes because I want you to picture in your mind. Sometimes it's better for us just to hear and let this settle in of what it looks like for our lives. So just listen to what Paul writes about our reconciled condition with God. He says this in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to that. When you're reconciled back to God through Jesus and his death and his resurrection, you are new, verse 18. All this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He was stained for us, so that, uh, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can open your eyes. Just, just let that settle in. Jesus took on our sin, our stain, so that we could be the righteousness of God, so that we could be reconciled. But now that we're reconciled, what does that mean for our life? Three things that Paul mentions I just want to highlight before we conclude. The first is this. Our life with Jesus is supposed to be described by these things. The first thing is this. We are to do reconciliation. So Paul says this, that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Now, some of you are like, ministry? That's not me. I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm a firefighter, I'm a police officer, I'm an accountant, but you, Pastor John, you're in ministry. I'm not in ministry. I don't work at a church. You don't understand what ministry is. Ministry means serving. Ministry is, is performing a task of service. That covers all of us. So what Paul's saying is, you've been given the task, you've been given the responsibility, you've been given the service of living out reconciliation in your life. That's what we're supposed to be about. But you need to ask yourself a question. I want you to think about this. Here's the easiest way to understand reconciliation. We're going to use the word with. That's with Jesus. That's why it's on the wall out there. But what does reconciliation actually look like? We just talked about it a little bit. But what reconciliation looks like is the things in our life that are wrong are made right by Jesus. That is applied across the board to everyone, to everything. Everything that's wrong through Jesus' death and resurrection is made right being a stranger, being an enemy, being corrupt, is made right. So if we are to do reconciliation, that means in our lives and in the lives of people around us, we have to ask the question, are things better in somebody else's life because they know us? In fact, listen to this question for yourself. Are the wrong things in people made right because of my influence, or are the right things in people made wrong by my presence? Just let that settle in. Maybe we'll put it this way. Are you good news or bad news to people around you? If we are being reconciled and we are the ministry of reconciliation, then we're good news. Because what's happening in us is not just with us. But here's the reality of reconciliation. This has been underlined in the service, this whole message, and you have to pick this up. Reconciliation is a relational term. I want you to hear that. We're talking about being disconnected from a relationship that we need to be reconnected to. So if reconciliation describes what we're really describing is how we are saved, how we come to know God, how we experience what it means to follow Jesus, if that is reconciliation, this thing called salvation, we're not talking about our behavior, we're not talking about our belief system, we're talking about a relationship that has been disconnected that needs to be reconnected. And if that's the whole reality of reconciliation, the only way that what is wrong in somebody's life is made right is through relationship— That changes everything about how we approach people, because now we're talking about, we're not talking about people's behavior. We're talking about the fact that they may not know it, but the reason that they're living in the life that they're living is because they really don't know Jesus yet. Why is that important? Because what do you and I do when it comes to somebody who's broken? We start with their brokenness and their bad behavior. That's the first thing we do. We look at people and say, oh, you drink, you smoke, you cuss, you got tattoos, you have a promiscuous lifestyle. We go down the list, and in our own mind, we're thinking, we're passing judgment. And we think those are the issues. Those are not the issues. Those are the symptoms of somebody who's disconnected from God. They're not truly living. Why? Because they don't know Jesus. It's a relational issue. It shifts the way you and I look at this thing called evangelism. Why in the world do we start with people's bad behavior when Jesus never did it? Because Jesus came to what? Reconcile all things back to God through him. He didn't come down to point the finger at all the bad behavior of human beings. That's obvious. He looked at us and realized the symptom of the broken relationship is the bad behavior. If you deal with the broken relationship, the bad behavior gets dealt with as a part of it. So let me explain this. So I was on a ride-along of a Newburgh one time with a police officer, and uh, we actually ended up... Uh, he kind of stopped, and there's this couple walking on the street. He saw a whole story behind it that I didn't, because he's a great police officer. He has backup come, and he takes this girl, and then this guy separates them. One of the, guy, the, the his partner goes with this guy, and we are with the girl. And so he starts interviewing her, asking her questions. And then the other officer's talking to the other guy. And so this girl starts kind of telling what's going on. And so here's the story. She's 15 years old. She's living in a motel in Newburgh. She's getting pimped out by a 27-year-old for drugs. So she's having sex, underage sex, with this guy. And this is her choice, she said. So this is all unfolding. And, this, of course, the officer picked up something wasn't right. I didn't know something wasn't right. So we're, he's unpacking this with her. And as this is going on, I'm watching the officer, because she's going down the list of all the stuff that she's done for drugs. And, she's, and she's now as we're unfolding, he knows this. I don't know this at the time. He had already put a call into her mom, who lived 10 miles away in another city, because she had been reported as a runaway. And so she's going through all of this. What's underneath the surface is the reason that she's in a motel with a 27-year-old being pimped out for drugs and having sex with him is because she has a broken relationship with her mom and she ran away from home. So when she found out that mom was on her way, she was ticked. She said, I left that woman, and that's not what she said, um, (laughs) to get away from her. But I watched the officer because not once did the officer pass judgment on her behavior, even though all of it, a lot of it was breaking the law, and obviously it was immoral, all these bad things. Not once did he point the finger and say, why are you doing this? He just said, I want you to know I called your mom, and she's on her way to pick you up. And I remember just watching that and thinking, this poor girl. In her mind, she thought, somehow, whatever's happened with my mom, this life is better than that. Why would she think that? Because there was a broken relationship. What's going to change her behavior? The officer's saying, wow, you really shouldn't have sex with a 27-year-old. You really shouldn't take drugs. You shouldn't let him pimp you out. Oh, yeah, thanks, officer. Now I'll change my life. Mm -mm. What's going to change her behavior is if her relationship with her mom is reconciled. And she has a home to go back to that's safe, where she's loved and her mom loves her and she loves her mom. See, the same thing is true with us. If you look at our lives and you look at people around you, why do people do what they do? Why do we sin? Because we're not reconciled back to God through Jesus. We don't know Jesus. And that doesn't mean that the moment you come to know Jesus, all of your problems disappear. No. But the core issue that you and I are dealing with is the sin that's inside of us that only Jesus can deal with. And that begins to work out the healing and freedom process in all of us. So, you have to understand that's really important. We do reconciliation. So, when you look at people around you, don't see their sin and brokenness. See the fact that they're disconnected from God, and it should break our heart. When you see your coworker or your neighbor or the person sitting next to you at school, don't be offended by their behavior. Jesus was never offended by your behavior. Your heart should break for them because they don't know Jesus. And when you have a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus and not about behavior, It's a different conversation because it's a relational one, not a one of do's and don'ts, which is usually what we end up in. I'll move on. Otherwise, I'll climb this soapbox too high here. Second thing, life with Jesus also is not only doing reconciliation. Second thing, verse 19, is to speak reconciliation. Paul says this, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What's the message of reconciliation? What's wrong in your life can be made right. What's broken can be fixed. What's sinful can be forgiven. That's the message of reconciliation, where you are separated from God, you can be reunited with God and life to know what life is all about through Jesus. That's the message of reconciliation. Why would Paul write this, and why is this so important? Because that's not the message that we put out, is it? Let's just be honest. Let's just self-assess as Christians. We're not known for a message of reconciliation, are we? We're known for a, a message of judgment, of isolation, of separation of holier than thou of being hypocrites that's the message that we whether you want you or not and and I know it's not true of all of us definitely not but but what gets play in our culture what is Christianity known for it's not known for love it's known for hate that's the reputation that we have so Paul says if you're reconciled to God your message is reconciliation and I said this earlier but just news flash it's good news Think about this. Your life is supposed to be good news for other people around you. People should really want to know you. They should encounter you and say, wow, there's something positive about that person. There's something good about that person. What comes out of their mouth is encouraging, even though I'm in a difficult situation. That's the message of reconciliation. Here's the deal. What is going to change our culture is not what we say we are as Christians. It's what we do. And if what we're doing actually comes out of our mouths because we've been reconciled, then the message changes. And what is the message that we need in our country, especially today? We need a change of message because it's not working. Because because now we're more divided than we ever be in the church. Christians as a whole are not good news. I'm saying this to myself, too. We're bad news. When the Christian walks in the room, people don't go, oh, thank goodness the Christian's here. Like, oh, why are they here? Seriously, think about it. How many times do you think twice about letting people know you're a follower of Jesus? Why? Because they don't think you're good news. So what is the message? What what is our message? How does this change or the adjustment? Jesus said this. This is is the message of Jesus. This is the message of reconciliation. In the words of Jesus, quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, 18, Jesus says this. He says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's good news. Would you agree? So what is our message when we encounter people around us? Let me just read you some things that I wrote down off the top of my head this week of what our message is. This is our message. The message of reconciliation is this. Addicts can be set free, blind people can see, the sick can be healed, broken marriages can be restored, lost people can be found, runaways can return, evil people can become good, sinful people can be forgiven, enemies can become friends, orphans can find families, the depressed can find joy, the weary can find rest, and God loves unlovable people. That's reconciliation. That's what we should be known for. If this whole thing is true, what Paul is saying and what we understand from the Bible and Jesus has forgiven us and he's connected us to God, this is our message. I'm getting a little passionate. You guys look like overwhelmed. I want the church to be good news. I want Christians to be invited to the table because they bring good news with them. Not like, I don't want them because they're intolerant and judgmental and hypocritical. I don't want them at the table. We should have front and center at the table because we have the best message in the world. God has reconciled us back to God. Jesus has brought us back into relationship with God, which is why we exist the moment God brought you into the world. He brought you in for a purpose to be connected to Him. And that's what we need, and that's what the world needs We've got to change our message back to what Jesus' message was. And then this is the final thing. We'll close with this. Verse 20. Not only do we do reconciliation, not only do we speak it, but we actually demonstrate it. Paul says, I love this. You are ambassadors for Christ. And this is great. God is making his appeal through us. God is sending his message of reconciliation and love for the world and transformation and eternal life through a group of broken, imperfect people. And he says, you're ambassadors. What is an ambassador? Ambassador represents a cause or a person or a nation that's greater than them. They are the representation. So I want you to think about that for a moment. If we are to be ambassadors, if we're to demonstrate reconciliation, and what I love what, what, with this passage and the passage in Colossians, the, the, what's stated and then what's inferred, is so important. Jesus God chose Jesus, his son, to reconcile all things back to God through him. I want you to catch that. That's not just human beings. That's everything. That includes everything. Because back when Adam and Eve failed and sin entered the equation, everything became corrupt and stained. Animals, creation, relationships, people, everything. Everything was tainted by sin. So, Jesus is in the process of not just saving people, he's in the process of reconciling everything that is broken in the world back to what it's supposed to be. How do we demonstrate reconciliation then? We look at everything through the lens of reconciliation. Everything through God taking what's been broken and what's wrong and making it right. So, I want you just to picture for a moment what does that look like for our lives? Think about what does it look like for creation? To be reconciled. I don't want to step on any toes, but I need you to hear this. One of the things in the church that we have not done a good job at is caring for the world, caring for the earth. Why? Because we think that's the liberals' agenda. The environmentalists, the whack job, I don't really, they don't really, they're crazy. No, 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 no. no. Do you know if you go back to Genesis, you know what the second command in Genesis, after God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, you know what he said to Adam? Take care of the garden. Take care of creation. We should be recycling. We should be caring about things like climate change. We should be caring about things that have been hijacked by a certain agenda so we back off. No, no, no. The the church should be at the forefront of caring for the world. Why? Because Jesus is in the process of reconciling even climate change. Animals, plant life, everything down to the most basic level. Why? Because he created it all and then he entrusted us with it and his what? Demonstration of reconciliation. Think about our city. What would it look like for things that are wrong in our city to be made right? What would, we, what would it look like for things that are wrong in our country to be made right? You know what? That has nothing to do with this in the White House. It has nothing to do with the political party. It has to do with Jesus taking what's wrong and making it right. And people in politics can't do that. Again, don't want to step on toes. It's about Jesus you guys are a lot more quiet than first service, so either you're like ready for football or I don't know. But think about your neighborhood. What if your neighborhood, what's wrong in your neighborhood was made right because you are demonstrating reconciliation with your neighbors? Down to the simplest thing I not even think of. This, what if you walked to your neighborhood and actually picked up trash? That's reconciliation. What if you cared about the fact that your neighbor's trash cans got left out and, and they've been there for three days and you just maybe go over and see if they need help or or maybe their car breaks down and, and they need someone to help them get somewhere because they don't have transportation. Or, or maybe somebody in your neighborhood, their lawn hasn't been mowed for, for weeks and you're not sure why. And, and all these things, that's all reconciliation. Why? It's because God is reconciling all things. Not just people. But here's what I want to close with this, this last, last story. If this is going to be true of our lives, we have to understand, we have to, and we'll talk about this next week, we we'll talk about becoming like Jesus, living like Jesus. But if we are going to be demonstrators of reconciliation, then we have to do what Jesus did. Jesus put himself in contact and close proximity to people who were absolutely broken. He did it all the time. He didn't isolate himself. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a great story. Matthew, who's one of the original 12 disciples. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And the first thing that Matthew does is he throws a party. He does He is so amazed at who Jesus is, he invites all of his friends over and says, you got to meet this guy. So who did Matthew invite over? I'll tell you who he did invite over is any religious leaders, because Matthew was a tax collector and he was hated by his own people. So who who was Matthew inviting? Fellow tax collectors, people who lived promiscuous promiscuous lives, people who were drunkards, people who were... uh, cheats and steals and violators of the law all kind of the people that was the outcast of society which would have been matthew's crowd because matthew couldn't hang out with his own people those are the people that jesus shows up to a party with you're like but yeah but but jesus just was there to preach the gospel and then he left no 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 if you read the stories then jesus he was actually reclining at the table with drunkards well they weren't really drinking oh you better believe they were drinking when jesus was there and I'm sure some of them was dr- were drunk. How in the world can the God of the universe and human flesh be in the context like that and people still feel his love? You know, the, the title that we give Jesus is what? Friend of sinners. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The healthy don't need a doctor. It's the unhealthy that need a doctor, Right? It's reconciliation. So let me close with this. If you and I are to be people who live out reconciliation in our life, here's how it looks. Everything we see, everything we're a part of is an opportunity for God to reconcile something in someone's life or something around us. Everything. So I have a friend who travels quite a bit, and when he travels, he uses Uber. And he's realized that when he he uses Uber, it's not just transportation. It's always an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. If you've used Uber before, I Kim and I have used it a few times. I love it. It is a great experience. It's, I don't know. It's something different than a taxi cab because there's usually no, like, plexiglass between you and the driver or whatever. But it's, like, great conversations. Well, he was telling me this story that he was, he was traveling, and um, he had to leave. He was at a conference, and he was going back to his hotel room, and so he, he got an Uber and hops in the car, and, and the guy starts talking right away. And this is what he said. He goes, hey, before you take me back to my hotel room, he goes, I'm not from around here. Can you take me to, like, I just really want to get a really good burger. He goes, can you take me to, like, to a really good burger place? Well, this is in California. So the guy goes, well, I'm taking you to In-N-Out. I'm like, good choice. So he goes, all right, let's go. And so he, they start this conversation. They're talking. And they get to In-N-Out. And so the, the driver pulls in. And, and my friend's thinking, okay, he's going to go through the drive-thru. He's going to order. And then we're going to go. And, and so the, the, the guy pulls into a parking space and starts getting out of the car. He goes, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, we'll just order inside. My friend's like, Okay. So they go up to the counter, and my friend's like, hey, let me, let me get you dinner. And he goes, okay. So they order, and then the gal behind the counter says, is this for here or to go? And the Uber driver says, oh, it's for here. <laughs> and my friend's like, okay, it's for here. So they sit down, and they get their food, and he says, for the next 45 minutes, this man just spills his guts. He's just gone through a divorce. He has two kids. He's struggling with his kids. He's struggling to love them, and his ex-wife, and just his life's just falling apart. So my friend just talking to him, and, and so they finish up, and he goes, okay, well, you know, you take me back to a hotel, and he said, listen, he goes, but I, I'm in town for a few more days. He goes, here's my phone number. He goes, if there's anything I can do for you, I, I, I'm going to pray for you, but if I can do anything for you, just, just let me know, and, and, and I'm here for a few more days. So the Uber driver says to him, well, uh, I'm off at six tomorrow night, and he goes, okay. He goes, give me a call. So about three o'clock the next day, he, he gets a text from the Uber driver. He goes, hey, I'm, I'm off at like six. He goes, There's this really cool place I want to take you to. It's where I go. It's like the best food around. And he goes, I I want to take you there. And so my friend's like, Okay. So he hops in the car and they drive like 10 miles, 15 miles away. And literally, he said, It's dark. They pull in this parking lot. There's no lights. It's this little hole in the wall place. There's like one car outside. And he's like, Jesus, am I going to die tonight? That's what he's like. He goes, Did I make the stupidest choice of my life? And so he goes, they go in, and it's this little Mexican restaurant, like family-owned, like family-style, just a few people in there. And they sit down, and the, the Uber driver goes, this is where I hang out all the time. This is like my place. These are my people. And, and so they just shared a meal, and they talked more about what he was going through. And they talked about Jesus. My friend shared what, what Jesus had done in his life. And there wasn't this aha moment where, you know, the heavens parted and this guy got saved, but I'll know one thing for sure. My friend doesn't live in California, but I know He still has a relationship with this Uber driver. Why in the world would he get in that guy's car? Because God wanted him to get in that guy's car. Because there's things in that man's life that need to be reconciled. And he put, Jesus put one of his ambassadors in the guy's back seat so that he could experience what it is to be reconciled to God. Eventually, I'm gonna pray that Uber driver does get reconciled to God. And I know it's gonna happen because God loved him enough to put somebody in his back seat that loves Jesus and loves him. If you and I will look at every opportunity, you don't have to be an evangelist. You just have to be somebody who can share the fact that God loves people and he's wanting to bring them back into relationship with him. Don't worry about behavior. Don't try to change somebody's morality. Just love them the way Jesus loves and get them connected to Jesus and let Jesus touch those areas of their life because guess what? You can transform them. Jesus can transform them. Would you close your eyes with me? We're just going to close. I'm going to say the same thing I said first service. If you are here today, and I just, just be completely honest with yourself. This isn't about church attendance or how long you've uh, attended church, even if you own a Bible. But if you were honest with yourself this morning, that you know that as you have listened to what it is to be disconnected from God, that there is a part of you that feels like that God is a stranger. And even there are those moments where you do feel at odds with God. There is a hostility. And if you were honest, you look in your own life and you're like, you know what, I'm tainted and I am corrupt. I know there's not a whole lot of good in me. But today you've heard something that has put hope in your heart. That actually God loves you enough to make a way for you to be acceptable to Him. That you could be accepted. That you actually can be Blameless not have any impurity in you, that the shame that has followed you your entire life, literally like a cloud, can be blown away so that it no longer follows you. And the way that 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 happens is through a relationship with Jesus that because of his death that takes all of that, all of that garbage in your life, pays for it on the cross, takes your stain onto him so that now Jesus becomes the pathway to God. And then in knowing God, you will discover what life is about. Will all of your problems disappear? No, but you will have a joy inside of you. You will have a power inside of you that you've never had before because Jesus will put his spirit inside of you because you are reconciled back to God. You are forgiven. You are being made whole. If I'm describing what you desire today, when I pray in a moment, I'm going to ask you to just pray and just ask Say, Jesus, I am tired of doing it my way. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm going to give you all of who I am, including my sin and my failed attempts at life. I'm going to surrender it all to you. I'm going to receive your forgiveness. And then I'm going to choose not my way, but I'm going to choose your way of living. So, Jesus, would you do that as we conclude today for each of us? And if we're here, and Lord, we've prayed that prayer and we've made that decision That, Lord, once again today, we'll be reminded of how important it is to be with you so that we are always walking in step with you, the God of the universe. But, Lord, for those who have yet to make that decision, would you give them the courage today to make that decision in their lives, to choose to follow you, to know you, to be reconciled back to God through you so that each one of us can say with confidence, Jesus, we are with you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in us today. In your name, amen.